You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. I am pleased to, produ- to introduce today's speaker, Brad Feld. Brad is a fantastic venture capitalist. Brad has just uh, released a recent book, uh, How to Be Smarter Than Your VC, uh, which, is, which is terrific and required reading in my class. Brad serves on the board of Zynga, among many other companies, and he's just a fantastic person to boot. So I'm really excited to have Brad Feld, managing director at, and founder of Foundry Group, here today. Brad. Thanks, uh, thanks, Heidi. What Heidi uh, didn't say is that we worked together for um, seven or eight years. So Heidi, seventy dog years. Seventy dog years. So Heidi has has all kinds of stories about me uh, uh, for later on. So um, what I thought I'd do is talk about a couple of specific things today, and I was looking at some of the previous talks. Uh, to try to get a sense of the tempo of, of the kind of uh, talks that have happened. And what I, I sort of really tried to put myself in was my shoes when I was uh, an undergrad at MIT looking forward. So I'm going to talk a little bit from that frame of reference um, uh, throughout the course of the, the chunk of time today. I'll talk for 30, 40 minutes, and then we'll do Q&A. So hopefully we'll have plenty of time. If people have questions, we'll take it wherever you want to take it. Um, before we start, my email address is brad at feld.com, and if there's anything that we didn't cover or you want to follow up or anything I can do to be helpful, just email me afterwards. Um, I feel like it's always important uh, to provide a little context uh, for the conversation, so I want to give you a very sort of quick uh, background chronologically uh, for how I got to where I am today. I don't want this to be a 20-minute, you know, here's my life story type of biography, so I'm going to give it to you sort of very quick uh, through sequence. In 1983, uh, I was an undergrad at MIT, freshman. My freshman year, uh, the vast majority of people that went to MIT wanted to do computer science, including me. And MIT put a big push to get people out of computer science and into other departments. And I ended up then um, doing some computer science courses, computer science vocationally, wrote a lot of software, um, but I also went to Sloan, which is a management school at MIT as an undergrad, and then a master's student, uh, and then a PhD student before they kicked me out. So I had this sort of experience early on that was a mix between writing a bunch of software and thinking about business well before people were talking about entrepreneurship. And that was really sort of the thing that attracted me to it. Uh, I started my first company when I was a sophomore. Uh, I was 19. It's actually not my first company. Um, I like to say it was my first real company that actually went anywhere. It's probably the fourth company that I was involved in. Um, the first three uh, were unsuccessful, and uh, they were in- involved with a variety of different people. But in 1985, I started a company called Feld Technologies and had a partner join me in 1987. Um, that partner, a fellow named Dave Jilk, uh, and I invested 10 bucks in the company because that's all the money we had. Uh, we had 10 shares of stock, uh, dollar share. Um, very, very complex deal that we did. <laughs> and uh, we proceeded the summer uh, of 1987 to hire a bunch of people, maybe a half a dozen people, uh, mostly students. And the first month after we started the company, or he joined me as a partner, we lost about $10,000. The second month, we lost about the same amount of money. And we realized we couldn't do that again because we didn't have any more money to lose because we'd lost money we didn't have. And so from that point forward, the company was um, uh, profitable and cash flow positive over its life, which was about seven years. Um, we built uh, a nice company, 20-some-odd people in Boston, again, entirely self-funded. Uh, we did custom software for um, lots of small and medium-sized companies and some larger companies back at a time sort of pre-client server computing, pre-internet, pre-networking, back when the idea of writing software for a PC was still you know, something that was somewhat of a novelty, and certainly doing any sort of business systems that were PC-based was unusual. In 1993, uh, that company was acquired by a public company. We were approached out of the blue uh, by a company. We'd never thought about an exit strategy. We'd never thought about selling the company. Um, And after about six months of struggling on even days, uh, I would want to sell the company. On odd days, I wouldn't. 
uh, and on Sundays I rested. Um, uh, after I think Dave finally got tired of my flip-flopping as to whether or not we wanted to sell the company, we decided to sell the company and we sold it for uh, a couple million bucks and ended up staying with this public company uh, for relatively, for him a relatively short period of time, for me about a year and a half. Um, at that company uh, was the first time I was ever really introduced to any sort of transactional stuff. So up to that point I've been running um, what was a medium pace growing uh, cash flow positive, self-funded business. I then was working with uh, some people that were buying up companies like crazy. So we bought about 40 companies, or um, the company that bought mine bought about 40 companies over a three-year period. And I ended up being part of the technical deal team. So I started to understand how deals worked because I was the guy that they would ship out before they do an acquisition when they're sort of in the negotiation process. And every company they acquired was fundamentally kind of a hardware sales company back when you could make money selling hardware. But um, in that process, they always had, every one of these companies had one or two software founders that thought that they had some really hot shit that was incredible. And my job was to go out, and when I left, they were supposed to feel like they didn't have any hot shit and that they were just sort of happy that they were going to get paid for their hardware sales business. And that, that was fun, and I made some friends and probably some people who didn't like me too much. Um, as a result of it, I also learned sort of in a large organization how to torture people, uh, which became part of my job, which was sort of running around and dealing with some of the change that was happening within the computer industry uh, in the early 90s. And the most notable one that I remember was the shift from Novell Networking being sort of the dominant thing uh, to uh, Microsoft and NT starting to emerge as a sort of network operating system, combined with the shift from making all your money selling hardware and giving away the services for free to the flip where you essentially made no money on the hardware and you charge for your services. And for this company that bought all of these companies that dealt with this legacy approach, it was very, very difficult to make this shift. And I was in the, the middle of all that. Um, the other thing that I did during this period of time, 94 to 96, was I started making angel investments. And I made about 30 or so angel investments with some of the money that I made uh, from uh, the sale of my company to Ameridata. Um, and these angel investments were $25,000, $50,000 type of investments. Um, I had a strategy, sort of a, a model, where I'd invest the same amount in every company with the idea that I'd double down on it. So I'd make a $25,000 investment thinking that I might have to make a $50,000 total investment before the company either failed or raised you know, venture money, sort of went on to the next stage. Um, and as part of this, I was the founding entrepreneur uh, and or founding investor in a number of these companies. Uh, I was chairman of some of them, so I looked more like a founder than an angel investor. In other companies, I was just an angel investor. That turned out to be a particularly nice time to be an angel investor because it was the very beginning of the rise of the commercial internet. I was living in Boston at the time uh, until 1995, and so I made a bunch of investments in companies in Boston. And there was a period of time where the, the sort of rise of the commercial internet in Boston um, was actually quite far ahead of what was going on in Silicon Valley. So there was a very deep concentration of activity sort of for a two or three year period um, until I think the sort of center of that activity shifted more to the Bay Area. But it was fun to be in the middle of it. I also had broad networks around the country. So I was not just investing in Boston, but I was out here some. I would be in Seattle some because I had long linkages back from Ameridata and from my first company to Microsoft. So I did some investments up there. And I really learned how to make these sort of very early stage investments and get involved in these, these early stage companies. Um, I woke up one day and had ended up being part of a venture capital firm, uh, which was called, uh, ultimately called Mobius Venture Capital, is where Heidi and I work, but it started off as SoftBank Venture Capital. Um, I had gotten to know some of the people around um, uh, an organization called SoftBank. Uh, there was a core group of people working for SoftBank. There were a couple of us, myself, Fred Wilson, a guy named Jerry Colonna, another guy named Rich Levendov, that were all affiliates. And we were working with this team from SoftBank, making now venture investments. So I was still doing my own angel investments, but then helping bring deals to SoftBank, and, and this team was making investments. Um, the team woke up one day, and SoftBank didn't have any additional money for the team, so the group sort of spun out of SoftBank, created a separate firm, SoftBank invested some money in the fund, and then a team of, the four, of four of us went off and raised uh, a venture capital fund. So it wasn't very deliberate on my part. I just sort of woke up and, and was doing it. Along the way, another not deliberate thing happened, which was I ended up moving to Boulder, Colorado from Boston. Um, when I sold my company, I was 28, and I told my wife, who grew up in Alaska, I grew up in Dallas, Texas, that we would move to uh, somewhere else other than Boston by the time I was 30. 
Boston just wasn't home. It was fine. It was good to me and good to us, but it wasn't home. And about two months before I turned 30, Amy told me that she was moving to Boulder and I was welcome to come with her if I wanted to. <laughs> and um, being, being a wise nerd, at, even at the age of 29 and three quarters, I decided that was a good move. So we moved to Boulder not knowing anybody. And uh, when I look back today, 16 years later, it's a remarkable life change and it sort of forms a lot of the perspective that I have. Um, but also was uh, an interesting adventure because we really moved there not having any idea what the entrepreneurial community was like, not having any idea whether there's anything to do. Uh, and our premise was, you know, we were close enough to an airport. We like Colorado. We love Boulder. We've been there a couple of times. And our worst case is we could just keep going west if we didn't like it. Six months after we moved there, I remember having a conversation with her that it was unambiguous that this was home for the rest of our life uh, and that we were committed to it. Um, and so that's how I ended up in Boulder. Through uh, the late 90s, there was a lot of activity, obviously, uh, around internet investing. SoftBank and then Mobius had uh, tons of early success. We ended up raising successive funds. Internet bubble happened in 2001, 2002. I think anybody who was a venture capitalist or an entrepreneur in that period of time had a year that they would refer to as their shitty year. And um, mine was in 2001. So I remember... Uh, you think about a bad day. Think about when you just had a crummy day and you go home and you do your sort of favorite form of relaxation. You have a drink, you smoke a joint, you do whatever you do. <laughs> College, right? It's legal here in California now, isn't it? Um, you do whatever you do. Just you chill out and you go to bed thinking, all right, tomorrow's going to be better. And by July of 2001, I realized that every day had been worse than the previous day. <laughs> and, and there was no end of that in sight. And so I kind of changed my attitude. And I, I decided, let's see what the world has for me. Let's see what they can throw at me. Uh, and you know, then, of course, uh, 2001, for any of you that remember it well, was, was a very complicated year near the end of 2001 because of 9-11. Um, and I had never not traveled uh, for more than a week or two. So my sort of work life has always been, regular life has always been traveling continually. I invest all over the U.S. I like to travel. My wife likes to travel with me. Um, and, and so I, I would sort of never be rooted for very long anywhere. And I was actually, I took a red eye from California to um, uh, New York on 9-11, the night of 9-11, and got to New York the morning of, and was actually in midtown Manhattan when everything happened. Nothing tragic happened at all, but the emotional dislocation was really severe of being right in the middle of what was going on, far away from home, disoriented from a red eye, in the midst of this terrible year of everything going on. And I somehow managed to get uh, with a, a friend of mine who was a CEO of a public company and his CFO, who were also from Colorado, New York. We stole a friend's car, uh, a friend let us borrow her car from uh, Connecticut, and we drove home as fast as we could and got home. And then I didn't go anywhere for three months. And that was a very important sort of moment that I remember also because it was a shift where I kind of started to shift out of this reactive mode that was happening through the whole internet bubble and through all the insanity that was going on to a more deliberate mode in terms of thinking, all right, I, I got it. I can sort of, I've had plenty of success and plenty of failure. Lots of things work. Lots of things don't work. But what is it that I actually want to do and how do I want to do it? Um, over the next couple of years, uh, as, a, as a fund, Mobius, uh, evolved quite a bit. We had grown a lot. We shrunk. Um, we started to think about what our future would be by 2003-2004. Ultimately, as a firm, we decided not to raise another fund uh, in 2006. And that was a very deliberate decision. We didn't really have urgency around making that decision. Um, we were still making new investments through the end of 2005. But as partners, the partners that were still at Mobius, which included Heidi and myself and a few others, spent some time talking about, do we want to continue to try to go raise another fund and continue this institution that was you know, this thing that emerged from SoftBank, or do we want to do something different? And together, we came to the conclusion that it didn't make sense for a variety of reasons to keep doing it. Um, and we decided to essentially end of life Mobius. Now, it takes a long time to end of life a venture capital firm. Um, I think those of you that sort of watch the venture capital system, um, there's this notion that it takes about a decade to kill a venture capital firm. Because venture funds raise money uh, in a particular year. They get commitments from their investors. And those commitments are at least 10 years long. Usually it ends up being 11, 12, 13, 14 years because you get extensions. But your investors are committing to you for that period of time. You make new investments for five years. So you kind of have five years to be in the game. And then you have the remaining amount of time to continue to make follow-on investments in your existing companies. If you haven't raised a new fund within that five-year window, 
you're on your way to being out of business. And as it becomes a six or seven or eight year window, as more time passes, it becomes harder and harder to sort of reignite, uh, raise a fund and keep the firm going. So at Mobius, we decided in year six at the very beginning not to continue as a firm. And we figured out as partners how to manage the portfolio that we had through the end of life. As part of that, um, I decided that I wanted to raise another fund. I, again, I was living in, in, in Boulder, and I decided that one of the things I was going to do this time around was be very deliberate about what the principles of that fund were. And part of that was not just being deliberate about how that worked, but making sure that the people that I partnered up with had the same you know, sort of deliberate focus. So I ended up getting very lucky. Um, three of the people that uh, I'd worked with at uh, Mobius um, two that were in California, actually five people, there were five of us originally and we asked one of the original partners to leave, but the four of us that you saw in the video, um, part of the thing that was difficult for me as a partner in Mobius that was based in California was being in Boulder. And so I decided that even though I wanted to invest nationally and that whatever I would do would be a national investment approach, I wanted to have all my partners in the same place. And that was partly selfish because I wanted to be around my partners that I like to be with. But I also didn't want anybody to have to go through what I had to go through in the context of Mobius, which is as the one that wasn't where everything else was. I was constantly having to travel to California, constantly um, having to be the one that was coming to where everybody else was, which was a lot of personal overhead. Um, and frankly, was just not very satisfying over a period of time. Again, not, you know, it was reactive versus deliberate. So my partners, uh, Jason, Ryan, and Seth, uh, all sort of agreed, bought into that thesis. Jason and Ryan both made very big commitments because both of them had very deep roots in the valley. Um, moving to Boulder was, was a big move for both of them and, and uh, for their frame of reference, their networks, and how they're approaching things. In 2007, we, we set out to raise a fund. We waited about a year before we went out to raise a fund to make sure we felt comfortable that we could manage what we had committed to manage uh, in the context of Mobius and that our relationships with the other partners at Mobius were you know, in such a way that everybody felt good about things. Uh, we raised a $225 million fund in 2007 uh, with the premise of making early stage software internet investments all around the US. Uh, we were categorized as a type of fund at that time called an emerging manager, which was experienced VCs that sort of were regrouped and creating new funds. Some of the other emerging managers that came out of that, that cycle were Union Square Ventures, uh, Spark, True Ventures, um, First Round Capital, a handful of others. Um, that fund we've invested in uh, about 28 companies. We've had a couple of exits uh, early on. Uh, we've also got a couple of companies that are doing extremely well. And in 2010, we raised another fund uh, exactly the same size, $225 million. And part of our plan was that we would raise exactly the same size fund each time. So another deliberate decision on our part was we weren't going to try to grow our firm. I'd gone through that at Mobius. It's very difficult to grow a venture capital firm. Um, it's very difficult to be great at doing what you're doing in the context of venture capital if you're also trying to grow. And so our decision, at least from our frame of reference, was we're going to make about 10 investments a year. We're going to invest as a team. We're not going to add people to the team. We're just going to be excellent at what we do, and we're going to love working with the people that we love working with. And we're going to do that over a period of time until we're done doing it, and then we'll be finished. So no legacy, no transition of power, no figuring out what to do when you get older. We'll just do it for a while, and when we're done, we're done. And that was another one of our beliefs in terms of how we've approached it. Um, so, that, so let me sort of step back and talk about a few specific things in the context of how I look at that arc from when I was, um, if I was a, in, in college today, uh, and I don't know what time in college, so let's say I'm a senior in college. I, I have a phrase I use a lot, um, which is my favorite uh, Star Wars phrase, my favorite Yoda quote, which is, do or do not, there is no try. And when I think about entrepreneurs and I think about the experience I've had as an entrepreneur, as an angel investor, and as a venture investor, um, the notion of trying is not really uh, a core part of what the great entrepreneurs have done. The great entrepreneurs make a decision as to whether they're going to do something or not and then go after it with the full force of everything they have. And so this sort of notion of I'm going to try to really almost out of the gate undermines your ability to go do. And so one of the things that I've tried uh, to, to do is eliminate the word try from the vocabulary. 
Everybody got that. I got a couple of titters. Come on, wake up. <laughs> um, if you think about what you're most proud of, and when I think about what I'm most proud of in terms of what I've accomplished, much of it isn't the outcome, but it was the effort that led to the outcome, whether the outcome was successful or not successful. And in the cases where I didn't feel like I gave it my all, I was actually kind of disappointed with how I engaged with something. But in the cases where I felt like I gave it my all, I really felt like I, I would I'd sort of reflect back on it and feel really proud of what the outcome is, whatever it was. The second thing on that thread is when I think about the entrepreneurs that we fund today at Foundry Group and the way I think about uh, what's important in the context of a company, I have shifted from this, you know, early on in my career when I was running my own business, I was very obsessed with my clients and the work product that we did for our clients and our product. As an angel investor, I shifted into this mode where I was really focused on the passion of the entrepreneurs that I was working with. The vision mattered a lot, but it was really the passion. It was their desire to go do something that attracted me as an angel investor to take my own checkbook out and write a twenty-five or fifty thousand, or later on, hundred or two hundred thousand dollar check. But then, as a venture investor, you, I got stuck in this sort of complicated morass around teams, around market size, around vision, around what the opportunity is, around what the competitive dynamics are, around what the incumbent players do, and all this other bullshit that sort of made it hard to see through to the essence of what the entrepreneurs were focused on in their business. When I look at where we are today and I look at the companies that we've invested in Foundry, we've made about 40 investments over the last uh, uh, four and a half years. Um, we've made a few that I, I look back and we made bad choices. We made bad decisions in our investment process. But the vast majority of them I think we're, we're very, very excited about working with even the ones where it's way too early to tell whether they're doing well or not, including some of the ones who have struggled and are not doing as well as you'd hope, because the entrepreneurs that we backed were obsessed with their vision and their product. And it really came down to this notion of focusing their energy on the thing they were creating. And when I think about um, some of the other things that I've been involved in, and I'll give one very specific example, which is Techstars. How many people here are familiar with Techstars? How many people are not familiar with Techstars? About half the room. Okay, good. Branding opportunity for me. Um, I co-founded a program called Techstars uh, in uh, 2006 that was the second uh, accelerator program. Um, the first accelerator program, let me, let me do another branding experiment. How many people here don't know what Y Combinator is? See? Oh, good. I, 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 you can't see the audience up on screen. There were like 700 people raised their hand just then. <laughs> Uh, everybody raised me. Um, y Combinator was the first accelerator, and, and, and um, uh, what, what they did was pioneer this notion of putting a small amount of money into very early stage entrepreneurial companies, sort of a team of founders, and, and building a business from there. Techstars is a second. Um, we took a different approach, which was a, an approach we call a mentor driven approach, which is in addition to sort of working closely with these companies as Techstars, we also surround them very actively. Uh, with a number of mentors, uh, 50 to 100 mentors per city, depending on the city. We have programs in New York, Boston, Seattle, and Boulder. And those mentors don't just come and give talks. Those mentors actively engage with the companies over the course of the 12-week program to help those entrepreneurs get their businesses up and running. We've had about 90 companies go through the program now. Um, Bloomberg just did a series uh, on TV. If you, wanna, if you go to uh, Bloomberg. Uh, dot com and you sort of search under TV, you'll see a Techstars thing. There's some good, good videos if you're interested in that. Um, it's been a phenomenal experience. And looking back on those 90, uh, 100 companies now that have gone through the program, um, the thing that is most notable to me is the successes of the ones where the entrepreneurs were obsessed with their product. And what that product was changed over time. It evolved. It wasn't the exact first thing they started with. And some of them, you know, the word pivot, I'm sure many of you have heard, many of them pivoted a lot. Um, but, but they cared about that product, and they cared about how people responded to that product more than anything else. 
I lost that somewhere in the 97, 98, 99, 2000, 2001, 2002 timeframe. And when I look back at the great companies that I'm most proud of having been involved in, it's the ones where the entrepreneurs were obsessed with the products. So I'll leave you with that. Third is do things that you love. Think about some of the things that I do. I'm 45 now, so I'm, I'm uh, uh, able to sort of look back on, on longer arcs. Um, I always had a fantasy about writing a book. Yeah, I a pretty good writer. Been writing a blog for a while. My wife's a writer. I don't know. I like to read. I always had a fantasy about writing a book. So I've written two books now. I wrote a book called Do More Faster, which was with David Cohen, who's the CEO of Techstars, <coughs> and talks about the experience of what these companies go through in Techstars. Um, and as part of that is uh, anecdotes from the mentors and the entrepreneurs that went through Techstars. I also wrote a book called Venture Deals, Be Smarter Than Your Lawyer and VC, which the video that you saw before was a promo piece for, uh, which my partner Jason Mendelson, who's an incredibly talented musician, wrote the music, wrote the song, sang the song, composed the song, scripted the video, made us dress up funny, made us sort of dance. I can sort of dance, not really, actually. Um, and Venture Deals came from Jason and I writing a term sheet series in 2004, 2005 on my blog at feld.com, where, as far as I know, we sort of demystified the term sheet for the first time. I don't know how many people here, anybody here ever looked at the term sheet series? Ever saw the Feld.com term sheet? Oh, good. Everybody, for the TV, everybody saw it. Everybody's hands went up. Um, that, uh, that was an effort to take this thing that was very turgid uh, and hard to sort of get your arms around and make it very understandable for any entrepreneur. And a lot of entrepreneurs say, why do I need to understand that? And my view is that the more information the entrepreneurs have at every step along the way, uh, the more advantage they have in the process. And writing venture deals uh, as a book came out of that. But when I look at the writing of the books, part of it was a meta process for me. Right? I looked at it and said, all right, I want to write a book. I want to understand what it is to write a book. Not that trivial. I want to understand the publishing industry, because I think the publishing, pu publishing industry, physical book publishing industry, is completely fucked. And I felt that way for a long time, but I didn't know why. Like, I didn't have actually the experience of why. And I cared about that experience of why and wanted to understand it. Um, and I also wanted to look back on it and feel like I really put a ton of energy into understanding how to do this thing that, frankly, I think in you know, 50 years will look very different as a thing than it looks today. So I wrote a couple of books. Um, I have a third book that I'm working on called Entrepreneurial Communities, and I'll give it to you as an example of do something that you really care about. I have believed for a long time that there are a number of places in the U.S. and around the world, but I'm focused on the U.S. because that's what I, I know in the sandbox I want to play in, that can develop long-term sustainable entrepreneurial communities. There's a meme that goes around a lot, which is that the only place to create a company, if you want to be an entrepreneur, the only place to be is the Bay Area. And that's fine. I think it's a stupid meme. Um, Bay Area is great. There's some amazing things about the Bay Area. It's a unique place in terms of concentration of entrepreneurship. But the idea that this is the only place that you can create a company that's an interesting and amazing company is nonsense. That's fine. So I wanted to understand that better. Not easy to make the assertion. Let's actually understand that. So I have this laboratory called Boulder. And I've been spending the last 15, 16 years in this laboratory called Boulder, not just working on investing and in creating companies, but working with a bunch of entrepreneurs in Boulder to create a really robust entrepreneurial community. And not just robust in a boom cycle, but sustainable over a long, long period of time. And a community that builds over and over in that, during that period of time. So some of the activities that I've done in Boulder have actually been science experiment more than they've been anything else to try to understand something because I was very passionate about that. And from that's come an, a, a set of abstractions. I'll give you the four sort of principles of entrepreneurial community from my frame of reference. Um, the first is that they have to be led by entrepreneurs. Very simple. The leaders have to be entrepreneurs. The second is that you have to have a 20-year view from today. And that 20-year view should increment by a day every day. So you have to be constantly looking forward 20 years. It's not, hey, we're in year 15 of it. You're in year 15 of the 35-year process. You always have to be looking out at least 20 years and committed to it. Third is you have to have activities that engage the entire entrepreneurial stack from top to bottom. 
that make it easy for aspiring entrepreneurs to engage in the process of entrepreneurship. Not just go to cocktail parties, not just go to events where sweaty guys from Boulder, Colorado talk to you for an hour, but actually do things that are around the process of entrepreneurship. Accelerators are a great example of that. Startup weekend, anybody here done a startup weekend? Handful of people. If you haven't done a startup weekend and you're interested in entrepreneurship, I implore you to do a startup weekend. It's an unbelievable experience for 72 hours. Think of it as a simulation of creating a company for 72 hours. How many people here have ever played the beer game? A couple people. That's a business school game, I guess. Um, but that's an operations research simulation that goes back 20 or 30 years. Really good example of, of uh, understanding sort of supply-demand dynamics. Startup Weekend is that kind of thing for entrepreneurship, but it's real. You have to have these activities, real things to do. Um, and then the last is that you have to be constantly getting fresh blood into the system. So obviously Stanford's a phenomenal source of that, MIT's a phenomenal source of that. Towns like Boulder that have a natural attraction, we have 25,000 students in Boulder out of 100,000 people that live there. So every year there's another 5,000 or so students that show up. Um, but it's a very attractive place to live. People want to go there. And if, if you have these things separate, disconnected from each other, they don't work. They have to be linked. Because it's not just that people can show up, but they have to have things to engage in and an easy way to get involved in what's going on in the overall entrepreneurial community, which has to be led by people who are going to be there for tw the next 20 years and want to be committed to it for the next 20 years. So I give you that as a framework. And as part of that, I said, all right, that's good. I can talk about that. I can, you know, I can refine that thought process. But there's nothing quite like trying to codify that. So that's book three. Now, I've published two books with a publisher, and I think that the publishing industry is completely screwed. So I'm going to self-publish a book because I want to learn about how to self-publish a book. The fourth book is a book I'm writing with my wife called The Startup Marriage, uh, How to Survive and Thrive a Relationship with an Entrepreneur. <laughs> and I speak from experience, and many people in this room that are entrepreneurs, been involved in relationships with entrepreneurs, probably immediately relate to it. Um, Again, it's experience because part of the challenge here is to write a book with my spouse in a way that's actually effective, right? It's not our full-time jobs to do this together. So we sort of have to figure out how to make that work in the context of our life too. So I give this to you sort of in the framework of do things that you love to do. And part of what you love to do is where you can get this incredible learning and knowledge from it. For me, the things that inspire me the most and turn me on the most is when I learn something when I'm involved in experience where I have this sort of continual process of discovering and understanding new things. Um, that's always been the driver for me. And frankly, I think that's a driver for a lot of, excuse me, the driver for a lot of amazing entrepreneurs. Um, yeah, money's fine and recognition's fine and all that stuff. But really, what are you learning? Recognizing that there does come a point where, you know, the lights go out. And my father used to say when I was a little kid, the lights go out. They put you in a box, they throw dirt on you, and they, maybe if you're lucky, they publish your picture in the newspaper the next day. Um, you have this experience. Get as much as you can out of it. And again, I'm talking to my 19 or 20-year-old self. Make sure that you're spending your time on things where you're learning all the time, because that'll propel you forward. Um, the last thing on this thread that I want to give you is this, is, of this, is this notion of living your life. Um, I hear this over and over again. I talk a lot about work-life balance. I've had my own issues understanding this. When I was um, 35, so a decade ago, um, after, this is 2002-ish, maybe 2001 in that time frame. Let's say 2001. Uh, Amy and I uh, were going to spend the long weekend together with some friends uh, in Rhode Island. And we, we, flew to, we met up in Boston. I don't remember where I flew from. I don't remember where she was. We drove down to Rhode Island. I was on the phone all the way down, you know, talking about trying to save some company that was going to fail anyway. Um, we get to our friend's house, and I'm still working. It's Friday night. You know, we're drinking a little bit, but I'm still working on something or talking on the phone or some such nonsense. And we finally go out to dinner, and my phone rings in the middle of dinner, and I get up and I leave. And, you know, you come back. I, at least I'm smart enough to leave the table and go outside the restaurant. I come back, and they're done with dessert, right? So... Like, it's over, it's, dinner's over. We go back to the room, to our friend's house, and, you know, we hang around for a little while later. We get in bed, and for those of you that are involved with somebody, you know, if you get into bed, you, you almost always immediately know if there's something wrong. <laughs> and you can just sense it. 
And, and uh, you know, I was sort of laying there, and, and she says uh, to me, I'm done. And I said, yeah, this was a tough week. I'm tired. <laughs> it's really been a schlep. Uh, man, so much shit going on. And she says, no, 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 you don't understand. You're not even a good roommate anymore. <laughs> and uh, I said, what, what, what do you mean? She says, I'm not angry at you. I love you. I think you're awesome. But I'm just done. I don't want to live like this. And I said, time out, uh, you know, not interesting to me. Let's not go here. You know, it's Friday night. She's like, no, no, really, I just, this is not working. And, you know, an hour later of that conversation that I think probably many people have had, um, we're sort of back to, let's spend the weekend and let's really talk about it. Like, you know, the, the ledge is here. You're no longer on the ledge. But let's, and, and in that moment where there's only certain moments in time where you can do this and get away with this. But just as we're falling asleep, I nudge her and I say, so I guess that means I'm not getting any tonight, huh? <laughs> and to, to her credit, she laughed. And it, and it was perfect. I didn't get any. But, but, <laughs> but, but she laughed, and, and I knew that I wasn't on the edge anymore. Like, I knew that we could actually have a rational conversation. So we spent the weekend talking about it. I gave her my phone, and I said, let's, look, I'm, I've got an engineer's brain. Give me some rules. Oh, that's not romantic. That's stupid. I don't, let's just try it. It couldn't be worse. Like you told me I was a shitty roommate. It couldn't be worse. Let's just try it. And we ended up with a series of rules. An example of some of the rules, we go away every quarter for a week, no phone, no email. So we call it our quarterly vacation off the grid. And I've now been doing it for over a decade. Um, and the first two years of it, the first eight or ten times, we were awful total traumatic experience to just disconnect for a week. And now I just I look forward to stepping onto the airplane, giving her my iPhone, and getting it back in a week. And you know, my, my assistant knows how to find me. My partners know how to find me if it's an emergency. Um, and they decide it's n there's no emergency that they could possibly want to bother me for. So I'm never bothered. It's wonderful. <clears throat> Another is we have something we call life dinner. So the first night of every month, we go out together. Not on a date. We have plenty of dates. We have plenty of going out to dinners. But we had this very specific dinner on the first night. And I said to her as we were defining this, and I says, well, first night every month, I can probably commit to that. That, that probably works. She says, don't you use a calendar, online calendar? Very sarcastically. And I said, yeah. And she says, don't they make these things called uh, repeating appointments? <laughs> yeah. She says, why don't you make a repeating appointment from 6 to 10 p.m. on the first day of the month from now until forever. <laughs> so we have a series of things like that. And on, on life dinner, we talk about the previous month and the next month. And that's the agenda for the dinner. And it could be a two-minute long conversation or it could be a three-hour long conversation. It could be wide-ranging. It could be about a specific thing. Um, but we've used that as sort of rhythm um, in our relationship. Now, the reason I'm telling you these stories around this is that part of what was important to me at this moment in time was I was involved with this person that was more important to me than anything else I was doing, but who also respected and valued my level of commitment to the things that I did as an entrepreneur and as an investor and the way that I wanted to live my life, and I respect the way she wants to live her life. But the intersection of that was important. We had to understand what that meant in the context of living our lives and me personally living my life um, uh, from that point forward. Part of that just to finish on it, is this idea that there are things that you can do that you want to perfect and understand. And in living your life, sometimes they're baffling to other people. So one of the things that I do, I love to run marathons. And I decided to run a marathon in every state because it just seemed like a nice symmetric thing to do. Um, so I'm on a quest to do that. Um, Amy doesn't have any interest in running marathons, but she loves to come with me on these experiences. I started running marathons. I get asked regularly, why did you do it? And, you know, maybe to lose some weight, get in better shape. I actually just like having six to ten hours a week with nobody talking to me and no email and no phone. I like to go run in the mountains and be just left alone. And if I'm training for marathons all the time, I have a perfect excuse to do that. Um, but it comes back to this notion of doing something that you care about really well. And in the context of running, uh, running marathons, some of it's an experiment for me. So I wanted to see if I could run a marathon on a Saturday and a Sunday. And I wanted to do that not by being a professional marathon runner, but by being just a normal person, flying all over the place, working 70, 80 hours a week, investing in companies, and that sort of thing. 
And so that's what I've been doing. And so this weekend, I'm running my second marathon in a week. So I'm running, I ran a marathon last week. I'm going to run another marathon on Sunday um, on this sort of path doing a Saturday-Sunday experience. I'm not doing it for any other reason other than it's a science experiment. I want to actually know what it feels like to do it so I can better understand what this phenomena is in the context of something I'm trying to do, which is run a marathon in every state. That's, again, coming tied all the way back to this notion of learning and trying things just to learn how they work and to learn how you feel about how they work. Now, scale it up one more level. You say, that's nice. The last 15 or so minutes have been this personal rant rather than this rant about how venture capital works. Who gives a shit about how venture capital works? Because really, the essence of what you're trying to do if you're an entrepreneur or if you're investing in entrepreneurs is create amazing new things that impact all of us. And if that's the path you're on, and you're not curious about how life works, and you're not curious about how your life works, and you're not thinking about the dynamics of, of all of those things and how they fit together, why are you doing it? And you take a step further, if you listen to my, again, my father, reminding us all as he morbidly looks over my shoulder and tells me that someday they'll stick me in a box. Why are you doing it anyway? Unless you're really passionate about it, unless it's something you care about, unless it's something that you want to do. And oh, by the way, all of the tactics around it, which you can get from all different kinds of places, probably don't matter that much if you're not working on something that you're completely focused on, completely obsessed about, love to do, and are trying to do with perfection. So let's do questions uh, for, we've got 20 minutes or so. Yep. Take it anywhere you want. Last week or last time actually said that you should not try to innovate anything but your one thing, and that you should pour all of your creativity and innovation into one aspect of your project and do everything else completely by the book. I get that you're not the kind of person who feels the same way, so I just would like to hear you react to that statement. I, I fortunately don't know who the last speaker was, so I can say unequivocally I think that's idiotic. Um, and let me tell you why. It's what, what, what that advice is, is, from my frame of reference, is advice that doesn't, that, that assumes a priori that the thing you're going to put all your energy into is the thing that is the pressure point of the opportunity. And I've learned over and over and over again that the pressure point of the opportunity moves around. And that oftentimes your premise, especially very early on in the life of the business, is wrong. And as the business grows and expands, or as your product set grows and expands, the thing that is the opportunity changes. And as an entrepreneur, if you're not flexible enough in the context of the thing you're creating to continue to look at the business as your innovation, not just the product. Remember, you have to focus on that product being outstanding, but you're also creating something that scales up. A three-person business, a team working on the first version of something that's a point one that's going to be released to the world as a minimum viable product using a lean approach, right? That's very different than what happens when you have a thousand people grinding away every day, you know, on a business that's growing by 50 people a month. So as the entrepreneur recognizing that it's not a linear path and it's not a path with one pressure point. Now, if the person's statement was circumscribed by time, then it's a pretty interesting statement. Because there's only so many things you can work on at any point in time. So if the, if the statement was put all of your innovation into the thing that you think matters or all of your energy into the thing that you think matters the most at that moment in time for a period of time until you get to the next level, whatever that is, then that makes sense to me. But the idea that you have it linearly over the life of the business doesn't make any sense. When I'm raising a fund, how do I? How do you convince investors to give you money? Uh, I, I think it's actually remarkably easy. <laughs> Either you have historical performance that gives investors confidence that you can repeat that historical performance. And it's not the performance, but what you did to create that performance. 
uh, or it's very, very hard to raise money. Um, interestingly, if you think about the context of raising money for a fund like ours, we have a very deliberate strategy. And part of our strategy is we're not going to change our strategy. So if you're an investor in Foundry Group, you're investing in a strategy that we're going to execute for 15 or 20 years. And we're either going to be right or we're going to be wrong. And you can measure us every time we ask you for more money as an investor. And if we're not doing a good job, you shouldn't give us any more money. So from my frame of reference, one of the problems that happens, one of the challenges that happens is that there's a disconnect between this idea of venture capitalists trying to invest capital in innovative entrepreneurs and create amazing new things. That's disconnected from this idea of trying to build a business that's a venture capital business that has more and more assets under management, more and more people trying to make those investments and have to continually raise more and more money from more and more investors. So I sort of disaggregated those two problems after having lived the second instead of the first. Um, but frankly, I think if you, if you have a clear strategy and you know what you're trying to do and you articulate it to your investors and your investors have confidence that you can execute on that strategy and you have some historical precedent for that, it's relatively easy to raise money. And if you don't, it's extremely hard. So it sort of bifurcates rather than being on a spectrum. Uh, your firm is known for thematic investing and getting there in early. Uh, so if there was an ideal entry point, what would it be according to you? And would you rather to are on the side of earlier or later? So the question is, we're thematic founder groups, thematic investors. Do we want to be earlier or later? Which would we rather err on the side of? I, I'd always, personally, I'd always err on the side of being earlier. So that's a, that's a style issue. For me, my point of view is I'm perfectly happy with the first three years being incredibly messy. We have a deeply held belief at Foundry Group, which is we should be willing to lose $10 million of our own money on a deal. That doesn't mean we're going to lose it in the first 12 months. But we should be willing to keep funding something and keep trying to find that pressure point that creates a business that's interesting at a relatively low burn rate if we believe in the entrepreneur, if the thing the entrepreneurs are going after fits within our themes, if we're passionate about it, and if we think they can create something great. And we will be wrong. That's part of what happens. And we'll be wrong for a variety of reasons, or the business will be wrong for a variety of reasons. But I'd always much rather be on the front end of that process and be part of working through it. Go back to what I said sort of abstractly about being motivated by learning, and I think my three partners are very motivated by this as well. I think we've gotten much, much better at helping companies through the activity of helping companies and being involved in companies, rather than being right about we picked late and we made a little bit of money. And that's the more satisfying part of the experience for us. So do you have any tactics that you use to like root out that passion in the entrepreneurs? Or if not, how do you know? Totally. Hang out, spend time, get to know each other, period. You know, the, the video you saw at the beginning is a spoof, right? I mean, you, you know, the, the VC is an abstraction where the entrepreneur comes and pitches the VC, I think, is a silly archetype. I mean, it's, an, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a big part of the business. It's a big part of the way venture capital works and a lot of the way the entrepreneurs and venture capitalists relate to each other. But when I think about the people that we work with, we, we get to know them. And we want them to choose us. It's not just that we're, you know, we're excited about them. If they're excited about working with somebody else, they should work with somebody else. The first conversation, if you're pitching me, is an easy conversation. The seventh conversation, if we're hanging out talking about something, it's really obvious. And we're not going to have the seventh conversation if you're not excited about the thing you're working on and if you're not deep into it. It's, you know, it's never going to get to that. So um, you said MIT made you switch, out of, or I guess like convinced you to switch from computer science. Why did you choose Sloan instead of any other branch of it? So, so at MIT, I chose, I should describe it very crisply, um, I hated uh, anything physical. So I loved computer software, and I hated electrical engineering. I got a gift once for a birthday, a birthday present. I got a power drill without the insides, just a plastic shell. Uh, we recently invested in this company, uh, MakerBot, which makes 3D printers, which is just an awesome, awesomely fun investment, an incredible team. And I uh, put the MakerBot together. Right now it's a kit product. It takes about 20 hours to put together. Next year they're going to ship a, a fully built one. You can buy them fully built now. But my partner Jason, myself, and a guy, Ross, that works with us put it together. 
And I still can't put little screws on. I just can't, I don't have, I mean, I have plenty of dexterity, but not that. Um, so I just didn't want to do the double E stuff. The other courses were, the other places where computer science was an avocation, or minor is the wrong word, but where there was a concentration, and it was civil engineering, which I had no interest in because it was stuff. Um, uh, I thought to myself, bridges, nah. Um, math. So I thought I was pretty good at math. Turns out I was pretty sucky at math compared to the normal MIT person. Um, uh, physics. Well, if I was sucky at math, I was a disaster at physics compared to... And then, and then Sloan. So it was a little process of elimination. Um, but some of it was also... I was really interested in what today we would call entrepreneurship. I was fascinated with my early heroes were. My summer job between uh, junior high school... or between high school and college was... Uh, for a software company called Petcom. I was their first engineer. Uh, I got paid 10 bucks an hour, so I, if I worked 80 hours, I got 800 bucks instead of what my friends were making, whatever they made for a week. And I got 5% of uh, revenue from the products I created. So my deal was 10 bucks an hour plus 5% of revenue. They didn't want to give them any equity. And so I get checks for $5,000, $10,000 from royalties. So I sort of was fascinated with this idea of, of owning and controlling my own destiny, sort of even at an early stage. Uh, so in our, our class that I hopefully you'll continue to talk about your active blogging. So we're just curious what you thought about like how like, your use of like where um, all those other things has helped you get to where you are now. Sure. So I started blogging in two thousand and four because I was fascinated with RSS. I've always been fascinated with technology protocols. So I've made a lot of investments and my partners have made a lot of investments over the years in, in SMTP or email related companies. Um, plenty of other protocols, XML, et cetera. And RSS was this sort of emergent protocol that, you know, got created in 99, 2000, but sort of started to appear at the beginning of what has been called Web 2.0. So I was interested in RSS. RSS led me to blogging because that was kind of the linkage between the two at that point. Um, I always like to write. And I sort of said, well, let me try to figure out how this works. I want to understand how this technology works. And so the way to do that is to set up a blog. OK, I'll start writing a blog. Hmm, user-generated content is interesting. Let me try to figure out what user-generated content means. And the best way to figure that out is to create some. I'm a user, so I'll generate some content. And off it went. When I reflect back on what it felt like to hit publish uh, or post at the time on my TypePad blog, <laughs> when I had no idea who was going to read it. It's a fascinating experience. Like that thought process of, did I get it right? Is it edited well? Does it mean something? Is somebody going to read it wrong? Did I? And so that was a very powerful learning experience, not just in terms of the underlying RSS technology, not just the blocking software infrastructure, um, but the process of actually creating content and curating and managing my own content creation. So it comes back to that sort of root cause. If you look at a lot of things I've done, it's because I was interested in understanding how it worked because I was curious about how it worked. And from that, sometimes came really interesting things to invest in, and other times didn't. But that's usually the origin point for me. In the back. Um, thanks for sharing your personal stories with us. So, I, um, so Steve Jobs commented on Bill Gates and Microsoft, uh, saying that uh, you know, Microsoft is a great company, and Bill Gates is great, but he just has no taste. And he, and he wish he could have done better if he had tried something has a broader experience. And, and I think um, you know you you pretty much resonate with that philosophy. But as, as a young person, like you, you often have the choice of having a broad range of experiences versus focusing on one thing and do it really well. And Steve Jobs kind of exemplified doing doing both. I was wondering what's your take on, on it, especially for some. It's an interesting philosophical question. I don't have any idea what the right answer is. Right? I think each person over the course of their life can figure out how broad they want to go on things. And I'll use me as an example. At one point, I like, I like, uh, uh, I like Europe. I like going to Europe. I like hanging out in Europe. I'm not quite sure why. Right? As a kid, I went to Europe with my parents. Probably that had something to do with it. My wife loves Paris. Um, I, you know, I love Italian food. Like some, some combination of things. 1999-2000, I made some investments in Europe. I did about a half a dozen investments in Europe, and I'm zero for six. And I just decided I sucked at it. And I decided I was going to spend no more time the rest of my life investing in Europe. 
I do business there. Plenty of companies I invest in do stuff there. But I wasn't going to learn how to do it. I could learn how to do it. I could get good at it. But I had no interest. And in contrast, in terms of going deep, I had this experience over the summer with Amy of spending a month in Paris. And we'd done this two other times. But we spent a month in Paris. And this time, I worked the whole time I was there, but nothing to do with Paris. Right? So I spent four weeks, rented an apartment, and we lived. We went to the grocery store. We had a half a dozen great meals, but we found the local Chinese restaurant. We found the local pizza place. I went and got, you know, when, when we ran out of Nespresso capsules and I forgot to go to the Nespresso store on the Champs-Élysées the day before to get them, I had to climb down the stairs first thing in the morning in my, in my pajamas and go across the street to get coffee and bring it back up the stairs to Amy. Like, we just lived. And from that, we had an amazing, amazing time. And we decided we were going to go to all of the cities that we visited or talked about, but spend a month living over the next 30 or 40 years. Hopefully, we live that long, right? But for the foreseeable future. We'll pick a place every year, and we'll go to it. Now, this is not we want to travel the world. I don't, there's plenty of places we'll never end up in, right? So it's, again, not going broad. But it's understanding this experience of, I've never spent a month in New York City. I spent a week there, but I've never spent a month there. Right? I've never spent a month in Berlin. And so I think it comes to you in different ways, and there's no right answer, and it should be for you. I think that's one of the most interesting things philosophically, um, especially about people that are entrepreneurs, is you're already oriented to creating the life you want to create and the products you want to create. Extend, say, you're already oriented towards creating the company you want to create and the products you want to create. Extend it to create the life you want to create. Because then I think you're going to be a lot better at creating the products that you want to make and the company that you want to make. The sad thing would be you created this amazing stuff, and at the end of the journey, you reflected back on it, and you weren't that satisfied with the experience that you had. So it's a great question philosophically. I don't think that there's a, an answer. Go ahead. Um, you said both computing and business at college. Um, how much do you think each of them added value? Do you think the best part of it added value as an entrepreneur? Uh, I did computers and business at college, which helped me as an entrepreneur, neither. I don't think uh, MIT helped me as an entrepreneur. What MIT did was it helped, it taught me how to think. So MIT is, is uh, you know, I have a lot of friends that have gone to Stanford and I have plenty of friends at MIT as undergrads that went to Stanford as grad students and vice versa. My experience was very simple. MIT was a constant assault uh, on my self-esteem. <laughs> From day one all the way through, continuous. I, I was, you know, top of my class in high school. I got a 20 on my first physics test. Right? Now, I didn't know that class ab was a 32. Right? <laughs> but I got 20. What do you do when you get 20 when you're 17 years old on your first physics test? You go to your room, you close the door, and you cry for an hour. <laughs> what else do you do? <laughs> Like, you know, not the fuck to do. Like, I, what do I do? Who do I call? Right? And it was, it was, for me, I was there seven years. It was seven years of that. Um, but, but I look back on it, and it really taught me how to think and how to go deep on a problem and to stay on a problem even when I was lost and didn't know where to go with it and just keep on digging into it. But doing it, for me, in a way, for anybody that knows me and works with me, I don't do it sort of single-threaded. It comes back to the question that the person asked about doing one thing and focusing on one thing. Right? It's often sort of floating around. And MIT taught me that because you're taking a half dozen classes and you've got a lot of things going on and you're struggling with lots of different things, but you've got to focus and go deep. That's what I got. I think that has helped me enormously as an entrepreneur. But it wasn't the specifics from the classes. Right? It was the muscle from the thought process. Last question. Make it good. You ready? Yes. Um, from an entrepreneur point of view, if they can raise the money on themse themselves, what is the value of a VC? Like, what would you tell an entrepreneur who's not sure they actually want money from your company? Um, what are the benefits of taking it from you? Well, so it varies dramatically. And I think, this, let me make a point that I think there's a misperception among many entrepreneurs, especially first-time entrepreneurs, that VCs are homogenous, right? They're very, very different. Let me give you an example. Any VC who says, I'm a value-added investor, almost by definition is probably not a value-added investor. Because if you say you're something, you might not be it. 
right? I say it sort of sarcastically, but it's the actions of the individual VCs that you should be focused on. And so the question sort of gets reversed. If you don't want to take money from me or want to take money from a VC, the only reason you'd want to take money is that they're going to do something that's additive. You should be able to discover that through their historical experience and their historical perspective. I think most people will be able to give you a nice laundry list of here are all the value add things I can do. And they're probably not materially differentiated in many cases. In some cases, they may be extraordinarily differentiated. So I think it's more the question of what's important to you in terms of the creation of your business and what are you looking for. And frankly, testing your potential investors with that is useful. But it's also very easy to figure out from the internet, from networks of people and from being able to talk to people very easily, very transparently, who can do what to whom and who's actually able to deliver on the kind of stuff they talk about doing. So I'd, I'd press down deeper on that and I wouldn't view VC as generic. And again, frankly, I wouldn't view anything as generic in terms of categories because there's different archetypes, but understand the archetypes. So thanks for having me. Um, again, brad at feld.com if anybody has follow-ups that we didn't get to. And uh, it's my pleasure to be here. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.